Hello, welcome to the Living Open podcast for mystics and seekers. I'm your host, Erin. I'm a Philly-based healing artist, and this is a podcast to support your healing journey. Hello, my friends. That's right, we have music now. (laughs) I have been making this show since August of 2016, and we have never had music. We have never had a cute little pre-recorded intro situation and outro. Wait till you hear it at the end of the episode. (laughs) So pretty proud of myself, pretty excited about it. And shout out to the amazing person that I worked with to help me feel into some podcast improvements. I will link her info below if anyone has a podcast and wants some help. She's pretty amazing. Um, She was recommended to me by my friend Yarrow. So today's episode is with Andrea Glick. You probably know her. You probably follow her on Instagram, Um, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about her anyways. She's a somatic trauma therapist, supervisor, and educator who specializes in treating trauma, nervous system dysregulation, and PTSD really prioritizing women, survivors, and queer and trans folks. She is a queer person herself, and she utilizes neurobiological, body-based, and feminist therapy practices to help clients feel safe in the present and come home to themselves. So a little content warning for this episode, we do talk about kink, as you can probably tell from the episode title, including consensual non-consent, we talk about rape culture, etc., those kinds of things, so please do take care of yourself if you need to pause, take a break, or skip that part of the episode, it's all good. We don't get into any of that until over halfway through the episode, and you'll hear me ask the question to bring that topic up, so um, yeah, I just wanted to let you know that so you can opt in or out based on where you're at, how you're feeling. So in this episode, we get into Andrea's journey to becoming a therapist, somatics and healing through the body, digital minimalism and the nervous system, using our phones to cope, and finding other coping mechanisms to support ourselves, body image and movement, parts work, working with our protector parts, how to start caring for and connecting with your child self, queerness and internalized homophobia, healing through kink, BDSM, and sexual fantasy, taking your power back through kink, shame around sexual fantasy, translating fantasy into in-person pleasure and trauma healing, doing nothing, what Andrea's been cooking up with the New York Times cooking app, (laughs) and a bunch more. So I hope you enjoy this episode. I wanted to share one little announcement, which is that the Creative Support Membership closes tonight at the end of the day, 11.59pm Eastern. And it's my group membership that's really intended to help you tap into your innate creativity and cultivate creative bravery and move through creative blocks so you can craft a more creative life. Um, So if you want to do some tending to your creativity together, come join, come hang out. It's going to be really fun and it's going to be really powerful. We're doing two live calls a month. One is a workshop. One is more of like a 
coaching and doing healing work together and there's a creative support course that's there to help you heal your relationship with creativity and visibility there's a really cool mighty networks community of witchy creative humans um so if that all sounds interesting to you you can check it out at the link in the description and yeah today's the last day to join so come hang out if you want to and with that being said here is my conversation with andrea I usually like to start the show by hearing a bit about your journey to getting to where you are. So I'd love to hear anything you want to share about becoming a therapist and doing the work you do now. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in high school, um, I was in the closet and I was really struggling with what I now understand to be just like a really dysregulated nervous system because of so many different things. Um, But at the time I was like, understanding it more through a depression and an anxiety lens. Um, and my, uh, mom, who's actually a psychotherapist, she made me (laughs) become a crisis counselor for other teenagers, um, (laughs) who are also really depressed and also really anxious. Um, so I worked at a crisis hotline in high school and there was something about the depth and the meaning and purpose and, being able to like end every day being like, wow, I helped someone, um, that really grounded me and really made me want to stay alive. Um, Mm -hmm. and then I tried so many other professions to be like, no, I, you know, I can't do what my mom does or like (laughs) to be like, I have to be good at something else other than this. And like, I, I was fine at other things, but nothing, nothing made me as happy as working with people in that way. So I got my undergrad in gender studies, which really helped me understand more of the anti-oppressive lens that I use in my practice and that we come into therapy as whole beings um, with a number of identities that impact our experience. And then also that I am not neutral in the room. So I have my own Mm -hmm. intersection of identities and experiences. Um, And then from there, got my social work degree because social work aligned with a lot of what I was wanting to do. It felt very accessible. It felt very holistic. Um, And then I just completed my three-year licensing um, after getting my degree um, to become a more advanced licensed therapist. So that's, that's like a bit of how, of how I got here. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for sharing and congrats also. Thank you. (laughs) Um, I'm curious about how the somatics piece comes into it for you, because I know that's something that you focus on. Is that something that you like, how did that um, passion and that piece of your work come out? Yeah, yeah, totally. I was noticing in the work I was doing in grad school with other queer clients that most folks had, actually all all folks had a trauma history, um, which is how I ended up in trauma work. And then the way that the trauma field is orienting now, which I think is really exciting, is towards somatics. And at the time, how I came into that understanding was a lot of my clients had chronic pain and illness. Um, and trauma. And then I was dealing with a lot of mysterious chronic pain and illness around that time related to both, I think my burnout and also, um, just other parts of my life that were unsustainable relationships, being in grad school, um, all of that. So it, it, the mind body connection 
was very real for me, both in my work and in my personal life. And so making those connections with clients felt really easy. Um, and then I think that the more I learned about trauma, the more I felt like, oh, I can't have this conversation with clients or I can't do this healing myself without the body. Um, mm -hmm. It's kind of wild that that would even be uh, a choice, honestly. Like it's, it just kind of blows my mind. So um, yeah. And then like learning that language and, and learning more about um, all of the different ways that that's possible. And it just really resonating for me, using it in the room with clients, it resonating for them. And then obviously like resonating on a larger level with what I share on my Instagram or on my website. Um, so I think it's, it's like a, it's a collective conversation we're all starting to have. Um, but it's one that's been happening actually for a very long time in other realms, like outside of the more clinical psychotherapy realm. This has been the mind body connection has never been disconnected <laughs> for a lot of people <laughs> and a lot of groups. Yeah. Um, of healers. So I'm, I'm happy to be part of the conversation within psychotherapy that we're finally having. Yeah. And it is so wild to think that we might be able to heal or process trauma or move through things without involving the body. I remember, yeah, the first therapist that I ever saw, it was just solely like we were just talking and the body wasn't really involved and mm -hmm. she was wonderful. And I didn't even realize that like I needed more support around that, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's what I really needed is that connection yeah. with the body. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think too, what people, both talk therapists and people in talk therapy don't realize it, is their bodies are already in the room <laughs> and like <laughs> there's already body yeah. stuff happening. Like, resonance, feeling understood by someone, feeling listened to, um, which a lot of people get out of talk therapy, that actually is a physical somatic experience. So it's, mm -hmm. if, if someone is in talk therapy and they feel stuck by that, um, there's obviously more that's available, but, but it still is somatics. Like everything is, cause we always, we always have a body. We always are being a body. Yeah, we are. We always are. <laughs> um, I have like a million questions that I want to ask you and so many things I want to talk about. Um, I thought maybe we could jump in with digital minimalism a bit because I know this is something you've been talking about a yeah, lot. Yeah. I've mentioned yes. wanting to share about it. So yeah, I'm curious if you could talk about digital minimalism and how it supports us and our nervous systems. Yeah, absolutely. This is where my life is definitely um, located these days. So I actually came into digital minimalism through a book recommendation from someone in my life. And, um, it's a, the book that I was given is called digital minimalism. It's by Cal Newport. Um, it's a great book. Um, he's also a white dude who loves to talk about other white men. So it's not like the most, um, me thing I've ever read, but That's it's the dude. one thing I've heard about that author. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I've read other books by him and he's very smart, but yeah, he really needs yeah. to diversify. Um, I'm sure he's not listening, but uh, <laughs> if, if you hear <laughs> if this, you are. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Cause we're not, yeah. White cis men, but, um, anyways, um, yeah. So that, that book really helped me change the way that I was understanding technology, change the way that technology was in my life. Um, I was, I, I do really appreciate that book and, and many others that I've read since um, have helped me understand the nervous system impact of technology, specifically social media. Um, and then also like, as I've moved my practice to remote, 
there's a lot, and I think a lot of people are struggling with this. Um, we could always be working. We could always be available. And it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm technically always in the office because the office is in my home for those of us that are knowledge workers and working from home. So setting those boundaries for me was really a part of digital minimalism. So what, what it means to me is using technology as minimally as possible when possible. And I, I fall back on this often, um, using it to accomplish the things that are important to me and not for anything more than that. Um, realizing the actual small amount of time I need using technology, specifically social media to accomplish what's important to me and what aligns with my values. Um, and then finding ways to unlearn certain patterns around my phone. So for example, I, like many of us used to have my alarm on my phone. Now I don't, I have an alarm clock. That's great. Um, and I have a number of places I like to hide my phone from myself. Um, and usually I can be pretty good at not going to find it. Um, but it's really nice to sort of lose, lose it and lose myself in the, in the here and now. Um, so there's a practice that I've been doing is not having my phone in the bedroom ever. Um, cause it's a slippery slope. So yeah, I have my alarm clock. I have my noise machine. These are things that used to be on my phone. Now they're not. Um, and then trying to eliminate the amount of time that I use my phone. Um, and being more intentional about spending time away from technology. So for me personally, that's been in nature. Um, I recently moved back to where I'm from and there's more of an opportunity here for me to be in nature every day or at the very least on the weekends. Um, and so that means that there are days I don't even see a screen. It's really nice. Um, <sighs> and yeah, so I, it's, it's very regulating. Um, our bodies are meant to be noticing the world around us, noticing nature, uh, connecting with other people. And obviously technology helps us connect with other people. And that's really important, especially right now. Um, but we, we really are meant to be in the here and now and more aware of the world around us. So just that is already regulating enough. And then the intermittent reinforcement of social media, it's always different. What am I going to get? Am I going to check my phone and there's likes? Am I going to check my phone? There's nothing. Even, even that, um, if it was always positive, we would know not to check it because we would know it would always be positive. So, um, learning that that creates this addiction to our phone or this, um, this nervous negative ner nervous system relationship of like feeling your phone next to you and having this sort of like adrenaline of like what's happening on there or um the phantom buzzing right we all kind of feel that yeah. um that's all that intermittent reinforcement it's really done a number in our nervous system so the more we can detach from our phones um or delete certain apps off our phone for periods of time we're going to be able to be more in the here and now and our nervous system will be able to settle in the world around us versus this, um, this really, really touch and go relationship we have with um, certain technologies. Yeah, I think I notice a huge difference from what you're saying of whether like my phone's around and I'm not going to touch it or even it's off and I'm not going to use it, but it's still here mm -hmm. or like it's visible or I know it's in my bag. It has a completely different relationship than when I've like turned it off and left it at home and I'm gone and it's just like not mm -hmm. possible to access. Mm -hmm. That's when I really feel 
free from my phone and like I'm not phantom vibrating or feeling that connection. It's just like it's severed yes. and that feels so good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that there's a very different thing to not be able to see it or to not be able to hear it. I actually never have my phone on loud, which is also <laughs> like can be frustrating for the people in my life. Um, but it's really nice. Like it's really, really, really distracting to hear that vibration or to hear that that noise and it immediately triggers something in our nervous system of this like urgency, this stress. Um, yeah, it's not good for us. It's just like simply not good for us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on team do not disturb 24 seven. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about the ways that like we can use our phones and scrolling as coping mechanisms. I know mm-hmm. that I do that. I feel myself want to reach for my phone. Like if a big feeling is coming up and yep. yeah, maybe how to work through that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. That is like, that's so big. I mean, we used to just have to sit with that. <laughs> and and <laughs> yeah. um, now we can just like lose ourselves. Yeah. in our phones definitely. Um, yeah. I think developing an awareness that that's something that we do is really helpful because it can help us have a choice point of, okay, I'm feeling really big. I'm opening my phone. Is this how I want to manage this emotion? And the feeling might be, yes, like this is overwhelming. This is the only tool I have um, that feels like it's going to work. Um, and that's okay. I would argue that like, we always have other tools with us, i.e. our bodies that can be really helpful. But if that doesn't feel possible, then, um, yeah, scrolling is a lot better than many other things we could do for ourselves. So, um, it's not always bad, but if the, if the answer is yes, this is not what I want to be doing. Um, I would like to be doing something different. Then we have this kind of juicy moment, kind of like on Netflix when it's like, are you still watching? And you've like 0.5 seconds to say no, or you're like trapped (laughs) into another like seven hours of watching. Um, the, the same goes for when we reach for our phones. We have this sort of like split second moment to be like, yes or no. Um, and the moments where we, where we choose otherwise to journal, to cry, to say, I feel overwhelmed or I feel sad, acknowledge the feeling, call a friend, um, just sit with it, do something different. Um, yeah, really it helps, it helps us move through stuff faster. If we're just reaching for our phones, then we're going to be, um, we're, we're saving the feeling for later. And that, that feeling could turn into pain. Um, it could turn into stuckness. It could turn into dissociation. So you're going to deal with it at some point. It's just, how do you want to deal with it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I wish that wasn't even true, but (laughs) it just is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you're saying is making me think about for me during this pandemic, really, it's been like returning to the most basic of tools to regulate Mm -hmm. and like to care for myself of just like the simplest things that are available, like taking a breath or like eating some vegetables or taking a walk. And it's like, Mm -hmm. those are the big things for me. Yeah. I love that you said that because I think being in New York for so long, being a Virgo, all these different (laughs) parts of myself, I was like, the biggest thing is the best thing, right? Like the biggest somatic expression of releasing something or like coping has to be this like enormous project. Um, I have also unlearned that through like my life now. And also just the more I learn about the body is that it is actually like very subtle. The things we, we need are pretty easy, like 
feeling the coziness of a soft blanket or taking a deep breath or writing about our feelings. Like it's, it's not that complicated. Other things can be helpful, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the biggest thing it turns out. Yeah. And it really helps me actually to make lists of those things Mm -hmm. because sometimes it's really hard to remember them, even though they are so small, but so big, it's hard to remember in the moment. And it's so nice to have those and be like, oh, right. It feels really good if I can just do that. Yeah. I love that. At the beginning of the pandemic, a friend of mine helped me develop a practice of writing every, every single thing I did for myself that day from like taking Mm -hmm. vitamins to like waking up and drinking water or not checking my phone until 10 a.m. Um, so that's a that can be a really nice way to develop those lists is to just look at what you're already doing um, and how it's working and seeing where, yeah, like where those small moments are already happening and then using them later when, when there is some sort of activation. Yeah, one of those things for me has also been like lifting weights, just mm, like my yeah. little little 10 pounder weights, but <laughs> this is awesome. related to your work, I think, because um, for a long time, I was afraid to get back into more forms of exercise that weren't mm-hmm. yoga because I was worried about having an unhealthy relationship with those things yes. and with my body again. Um but it feels really good actually. And I'm wanting to do those things. Cool. Um, so I'm wondering if you have anything to share about, yeah, working with those kinds of tools in a way that supports like body positivity and not trying to shrink. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is an ongoing project for me as well. Um, yeah, I, another thing that is really helpful with this is to know that when we move our bodies in a way where we're trying to change our bodies in a negative way versus I want to feel stronger, I want to feel um, safer in my body, I want to feel powerful. These are all like really, really positive reasons to move. Um, But when it's like, I want to be smaller or I want to be more ideal, I want to feel accepted, um, that actually releases stress hormones into the body. So yeah, you're quote unquote working out, but you're body is being attacked by stress. <laughs> so it's not oh. actually healthy. Um, and I think that yes, people can look quote unquote healthier, have these idealized bodies from exercise, but, um, their nervous system, I don't know how, how that's doing or their sense of self. I don't know how that's doing. So it's really important to always have the awareness of if we're going to move, let it be to feel good about ourselves in a way that is productive and that isn't going to like release extra stress into our bodies. Um, and, and it has to be fun. Like if it feels like we're just getting through something, it's a pretty dangerous thing to teach our bodies, right. To endure. Um, we endure so much already. Like we don't think, especially for queer people, for women survivors, like we don't need another lesson in enduring pain. Yeah. I think that's definitely true. (laughs) And what I'm hearing you say too, is it's so much about the way that we're talking to ourselves about it and mm-hmm. yeah, the ways we're talking right. to ourselves in general, <laughs> yeah. um, which exactly. makes, yeah, that makes me think about the parts work that you, I mean, mm-hmm. have been sharing about, but I just read your blog that you wrote about that cool. um, and how we have all these different parts within ourselves. And for me, a lot of those parts are talking to me in very mm-hmm. different ways. And some of them are not so good and some of them are wonderful. And yeah, yeah. I wonder if you'd like to share anything about working with the different parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, mean, I think even around body image, that's such a great example of how we have 
we can have this part of us that is body positive, that like believes in only moving when it feels good, that believes that everybody is deserving of love. And then we can have this other part that is not so sure about all of that or feels very differently. For me, that's definitely my high school self who was, you know, that that time I won't say when it was, <laughs> but that general time uh, was very different. Like no one was talking about body positivity. I think about the people who were upheld for their bodies and they were so, so, so thin and looked so different than me. Um, and so when, when that like teenage part takes over, that's when I'm looking in the mirror for certain things. That's when I'm scheduling an extra movement class, not because I want to, but because I'm trying to achieve something. And what I can do in that moment is acknowledge that, that teen self, I have so much love and compassion for her because she went through so much to try and have this body that wasn't hers in the first place. Um, and I can ask her to take a step back because like, that's not, who I am now. And when she takes over, when she hijacks the school bus of my parts, when she's in control, I make choices that don't come from my core self. And my core self Mm -hmm. is more of this like nine-year-old who is very comfortable with her body, doesn't have any negative thoughts about her body, um, does whatever she wants, which includes like a lot of playing, a lot of eating, um, and doesn't look in the mirror and see anything other than just like a body or like a girl. Um, so I can, I can invite her to, to step up and invite that other part to step back with compassion. I have, I have a lot of that for her. So that's, that's an example of the way that we can sort of mitigate these different parts of us that are sometimes all existing at the same time. And that gets very loud and confusing for us. It does. It gets really loud and confusing. And just hearing you talk about your nine-year-old self, I was just thinking about this this past weekend. I was seeing one of my good friends who had a baby during the pandemic, which mm. is a whole thing. But, yeah. And I was just watching him play. He's almost one. And I was just watching him play mm. and be naked and like crawl around and just like smashing food all over the place and was just really admiring how he is just in his body. He's just, he's not feeling shame that he's naked in front of all of us. Like he's fine. And just admiring that and feeling kind of Mm -hmm. sad too, because Mm -hmm. that gets taken away and it was taken away from me too. And it hurts. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. We have so much to learn from kids. We have so much to learn from our kids selves about yeah, just existing, feeling worthy of love just for being alive, feeling like we can just be, yeah, be in our bodies, do whatever with no shame or no, um, yeah, like contorting ourselves for what the world tells us we're supposed to be. Yeah. How do you, or how would you invite people to care for that little self a bit more? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, I have a very, um, a very strong practice of journaling and keeping journals. So my, how it looks for me is I read those journals from high school, which are so cringy, um, (laughs) but are also really valuable because I feel like that part of me is in the room with me. Um, and I'm able to really send her love, um, whether it's like touching the journal or imagining myself writing in it, because oftentimes I can, or or a certain passage will like jog a memory of something. Um, and it really helps me feel like there's this line of connection between the two of us. And then for people who don't have a neurotic Virgo collection of the last <laughs> 15 years of their lives, um, 
like I do. Uh, we can utilize a practice of writing to our younger selves, drawing, talking to them. Um, for a lot of people, it can be really helpful to look at pictures of themselves at that age to really like call that part um, into their hearts. We can write letters to them and have them respond through our non-dominant hand if um, we have a non-dominant hand, that's a really cool like right brain, left brain trippy exercise because your like handwriting looks like a kid's handwriting and it really mm. feels like I've had some pretty like psychedelic conversations with younger parts of myself that oh way my drug free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is what people talk about when they like do psychedelics. Um, yeah. So that's a really, really intense practice. Um but can be really cool. So I think, I think there's a lot of ways, um, for some people doing kid-like activities is really helpful. Coloring, um, playing, being outside when I'm outside, I'm definitely like mm. that kid part is really, really present. Um, and yeah, it can even be helpful to like show certain parts, what our lives look like now. So for example, like reading those high school entries and like how closeted I was and how confused I was about like who I wanted to be connected with romantically. I just like love to show her what my life is like now and my beautiful partner mm -hmm. and our super, super deep les life together. <laughs> um, so it's really nice to like use my eyes to show her, to show that part, to, like send messages to that part, mm -hmm. um, through like the time machine of my brain of like, look what we have. Like you did come out, you did find someone, um, you didn't have to keep staying in these really unhealthy relationships with people that you weren't actually interested in. Um, so those are all sort of practices that can be helpful to connect with those parts and show them the safety that we've built for them in the here and now. Okay, I've never done the responding with your my left hand, it would be, yeah. and now I definitely want to try that. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, very powerful, very powerful practice, yeah. Yeah, I also have, I mean, no one else is going to be able to see this, but you're right here, so this is one of my seventh grade journals. Oh my God, I have them around as well. And I wow, like to read them too. I love that it was right there. Like it was like, like my you, bookshelf is right here. It's here. Right, right. <laughs> you didn't have to go far to find that part. No. That's awesome. That's awesome. Very cool. Um, this is a question that I wanted to ask you and I'm not sure how personal you want to get. So feel free to say mm -hmm. no. But as you're sharing about your queerness, I'm curious about what the process of like coming out to yourself was like. Um, mm. That's kind of how I think of it for myself. Um, yeah. And around like internalized homophobia too, working through mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a great question coming out to yourself. Yeah, I think I was always out to myself. Like I think I didn't identify queerness as being related to like, well, maybe I did to sex, but when you're a kid, usually it's more just like, I'm different. Like I always knew I was different when I was a kid, like <laughs> when like girls in my class were doing gymnastics, like I was raising farm animals in my backyard. <laughs> like I was always oh. in this, like in a city, you know, like not, not in the country. So I've always <laughs> been like very different. So I always knew I was different and people always said, you're so different. So I like had that understanding and that that queerness was always there. And then I think like, as I got older, um, yeah, I just like noticed that I didn't necessarily have this feeling about like 
whoever was in team beat, you know, the like crush worthy, like hunky guys. <laughs> like I was like, yeah, no, I just like can't locate that. Um, everybody seems to be really excited about like this person and I just like don't see it. Um, and then eventually being in really, really intense, intense friendships with other girls um, that were very loving and um, really confusing. And then eventually like understanding that to be like, oh, this is this is a relationship that I haven't named as being romantic, but it is. Um, and then eventually like what really helped me put actual words to this say like, oh, I'm queer is having like a friend's sister go away to college when I was still in high school and like her coming back and explaining what queerness was and what, um, yeah, like what was possible. Cause I just like truly did not know. Um, and then I was like, that's me. Oh, okay. And so we really, that really taught me that we really have to see something <laughs> like in the yeah. world. We have to know the language. We have to like have examples before we can see it sometimes in ourselves. Cause it really wasn't until I had that word and I like knew someone who I also felt that way that I could say, okay, this is me both to myself and to the world. Um, yeah. So I think like, that's why being out is so important to me as a therapist. Um, I think a lot of queer therapists just are also out about that, but I'm, I feel very, very strongly about that because if that helps anyone feel like, oh, this is possible or like, mm -hmm it's possible to be myself in this way. Like that, that feels very, very important to me. Yeah, I think it's so important. And I feel sad for my younger self for not having that too. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's one of the things that's really cool for kids who are like in high school and middle school now. And I have a little yes. brother who's like 18 and just hearing about like his friends and how much more accepted, I think in some circles anyways, not right. everywhere, right. Um, but just generally how much more yeah. like visible kids are in school yes. even and how there are all these queer role models in the world. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it is really different. I think that it's, it's so it's just changing everything. It's so awesome. Like, yeah. yeah, my high school there, I think there was a GSA. There was like three people in it. There was <laughs> one or two people who were out in my high school. Um, and then now according to my like younger cousins who go there, it's like full of queers, <laughs> which just awesome. makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so happy. Yeah. I don't think we even had a GSA and oh I can God. only think of one kid who yeah. was gay. Like that yeah. was it. Oh my God. Shout out to all of the people who are that one kid. Like thank yeah. you for being that one kid who is out in high school. Oh my God. Yeah. Shout out to you. Thank you. <laughs> And that's so interesting to hear you say too, that you felt like you kind of always knew. I think I had mm -hmm. like a dissociative thing where I like mm -hmm. put it into like different, but where I was like, oh, I know that I'm like attracted to girls, but also I'm straight. So that like, uh, <laughs> like yes. I will, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, like just like totally yeah. compartmentalizing, I think, in my brain so that right. I could right. so that I could be okay. So that I could yeah. be normal in quotes or exactly. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's also how parts are created is we fragment ourselves into different different parts. This part isn't welcome in school or this part isn't welcome in my friend group. So I'm just gonna put that part over here and only 
only access that part in certain spaces or, or never. <laughs> so yeah. I think a lot, I think most queer people can really, really understand that framework through that example in their, in their lives. Cause we've all done some version of that at some point. Yeah. Do you ever think about like what the different parts of you want? Like, are mm. like, I think about, oh, are they wanting love? Are they wanting to be chosen or like what, mm. like, what are they wanting? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. My, my first thought was like, if I did what teenage Andrea wanted, I would be so miserable. Um, <laughs> but what she, what she wants and what she needs are different things. Um, yeah. yeah, I think all parts want love, all parts want safety, all parts want acceptance. Um, I think our wounded child selves need to understand that we accept them, that we love them, that there's space for them, um, that there is a safe present awaiting them. And I think our protector parts who step in to try and build some kind of wall between those those rejected parts and the world need to understand that they can take a step back because we're not going to continue to recreate what the world has done to those parts of us. And that's part of unlearning internalized homophobia is like, if we can get that voice out of our head, then those, those exiled parts can come forward and those pr protectors can take a break. Cause that's a lot of work <laughs> to be doing that out in yeah. the world. And then also inside of our brains. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so we can feel more safe. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to ask you about how you work with kink and BDSM in terms of, yeah, supporting people in healing or in healing journeys. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, I think it's so cool. And I have so many questions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. The, the more that I learned about somatics, the more that I was like, this is some kinky shit. Like, okay. <laughs> so, um, right, like the body can process pent up trauma or stress through these like physical actions or our younger self needs love and acceptance. Um, to me, I found like both of those to be directly linked to what a lot of people experience as kink. Um, and like kind of shocked that no one was like naming, no one I knew personally. I know there are many people who are, who are also naming this, but like just sitting in a room with like a bunch of um, you know, like older white lady therapists and we're like talking about these things that seem really kinky to me. <laughs> like no one was saying <laughs> it, obviously. Um, yeah. So, and then already having been a, a kink positive therapist for a long time, bringing that frame, those frameworks together. So not, so not just being positive saying, oh yes, it's okay that you want these things or it's, you can be in a healthy relationship and be in a DS relationship. Like that's sort of like just being positive, being open, being aware. But then the next level for me was actually, oh, these, if done with consent and done in a healthy, grounded way, kind of hold opportunities for healing, similar to anything else. Like, I think it's yeah. not to say, I don't necessarily believe it is the best way or the only way, but I think if we're going to talk about movement as healing and sex as healing, you know, kink is also those things. So like, why are we not making those connections too. And I think it's because people are scared or of all of the sort of kink negative parts of our culture. Um, but it's, it's kind of wild that that's left out when all of these other things are like the healing power of yoga or the healing power of pleasure. Like, okay, let's also talk about like the healing power of kink then. Cause that's, that involves those things. 
Yeah. I mean, that kind of feels like the sex negativity of our general culture and right, like the purity right. culture that's totally woven in and yeah. new age purity culture too. Oh. all of it being like, yes, yeah, but somehow that's not legitimate or sex needs right. to be a certain way. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or that healing needs to be a certain way. Yeah. Or yeah. Healing needs to be with a certain kind of person. Like why, it, it like working with an energy worker is great, but working with a pro dom is looked down upon. Like, how does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I listened to your whole interview that you did on somebody else's podcast about consensual non-consent the other day, and I'll link to it for people who want to listen to. But one of the things that I found so interesting in that conversation was that idea of kind of taking your power back, um, particularly as people who have like survived violence to mm -hmm. explore, um, yeah, to explore consensual non-consent or yeah. things that might be like perceived as violent, but in a way where you're opting in and they're pleasurable mm -hmm. um, as a way to, yeah, to take some of your power back. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to choose something. Also, like it's it's needs to have some kind of erotic or um, like pleasurable component. I don't think it's just to say like rewriting a narrative of a trauma. Also, not even a specific trauma, but like the general trauma of living in rape culture, which I think is why a lot of people eroticize consensual non-consent is both individual experiences and just like general, just like the world we live in. Um, yeah. Is that like, yeah, if it's if you can find pleasure there, if you can find choice there, um, then there is a lot of possibility for reclaiming your power, rewriting narratives, showing your body that you're the one in control. And that can happen with vanilla sex too. Like you think about having really safe, connective, consensual sex that doesn't involve kink after sexual trauma, that's also going to rewrite that narrative. So it doesn't have mm. to be the same thing all over again. But the reality is that the most common fantasy amongst everybody is either consensual non-consent, some kind of power dynamic. Um, if you look at like the most popular videos on like Pornhub, like they all kind of have this thread. So it is, it is in the collective like pleasure unconscious that this is like what a lot of people are interested in. And I think a lot of people are really scared of that or feel shameful about that. Um, and it's actually very powerful that especially women, especially queer people and trans people have reclaimed this trauma and made it into a super fun, hot fantasy, um, whether it's like the most biggest expression of that you can think of, or even just something more minor. Um, it's really powerful that we've done that. And I think it's like how a lot of us heal um, is through, yeah, making something our own. So it's actually, it's a beautiful thing that's happening if we can honor it as such. Yeah, I think so too. And I think a lot of the, a lot of it for me is around having shame around sexual fantasy mm -hmm. um, and specifically around those kinds of fantasies around yeah. fantasies that feel really taboo right. or like I, like I shouldn't be desiring that mm -hmm. or shouldn't be thinking that. And then it feels right. like all, yeah, like tight and crunchy. Like it feels like yeah. a spot of shame to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the reality is that like, actually the more we like make it taboo, like the more it will be in our brain. <laughs> like, yeah, like it will just keep showing up. Like I think some people figure out like, oh, is this actually something I'm interested in? Or am I just shoving it to the back of my mind so much that it like isn't leaving? Um, yeah. So it's, it's true. It's not helpful to do that to ourselves, but there are, I think, especially like within some queer cultures or feminist cultures, like 
we can view certain fantasies or dynamics as unfeminist or unhealthy or, um, yeah, like going against the healing we may trying to like trying to be doing already. So I think it's like understanding that that's not necessarily true. It's not feminist, like shame somebody for their fantasy as long as it's consensual. (laughs) Um, and especially survivors, like, yeah, it's having any fantasy at all is beautiful. And like, if you can explore it with a consenting adult that is healthy and grounding and respectful, um, there's usually something that is useful there. What are your thoughts about keeping something as a fantasy versus exploring in person? Like Mm -hmm. I found for myself, and maybe it's just trying it, but some things for me are a really hot fantasy, but doing Mm -hmm. them actually physically in person, I'm like, eh, like I just preferred it in my brain. Right. Um, So like, how do you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's such a good question. That's such a good question. I think sometimes parts of fantasies can translate to in-person but you're maybe shift changing it a bit. Maybe the person you're with doesn't fit the fantasy exactly. Um, or you you've like found a different way to make it translate to in-person. Um, so I think like the idea that our fantasies have to perfectly translate to our sex lives, like doesn't totally make sense all of the time. Um, but I think if there's like, if there's a reoccurring fantasy, um, that's coming up and you can find elements of that in play with a partner, I think it is really exciting to get to explore that and say like, oh, this, this part of myself gets to exist in my brain and outside of my brain. But, um, you'll usually get pretty clear answers if it's like something that you want to exist in, in the physical realm (laughs) or something in the fantasy realm. Um, yeah, I think also like, this is where like working with people who can create that experience for you in a safe environment is really wonderful. Um, just like going to see a therapist, like seeing someone who professionally helps fantasies become realities um, is such a safe container. Um, and there gets to be a lot of control and predictability in that environment. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by why I'm into different things. And I know everybody doesn't have to, I don't think it really matters so much why, but I'm just really intrigued by that. Mm -hmm. And when I think about like what I'm trying to feel or what I'm trying to experience through different fantasies, there Mm -hmm. are like different themes, which are so interesting, like enjoying feeling like humiliated or used Mm -hmm. or chosen Mm -hmm. or special. Like those are like themes that run through. Yeah. And it's so fascinating to think about, oh, that's why I'm so into that fantasy or that's why that is so hot for me. Cause that's the feeling, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And we can think as hard or as little as we want about those things. Like for some of us, it's like, oh my God, that's because I was bullied as a kid. Like, okay, that makes sense. Right. And then other times it's like, I'm into this. I don't really want to know why, like, let's not overthink it (laughs) and just enjoy it, you know? Um, But I think generally, I think especially for like fantasies of submission or humiliation, that is the day-to-day reality of being a woman, of being a queer person, a trans person, Um, many other identities experience that on a daily basis and getting to experience that by choice in an erotic situation makes a lot of sense. Um, and 
you don't have to think too hard about that. It just makes sense. <laughs> like yeah. it's pretty powerful to eroticize that. Um, but yeah, there, there do tend to be those larger themes. That's what I think I meant. Like with, you can bring some of those things into reality. So like maybe there's a specific fantasy that feels too much overwhelming. Like it wouldn't translate to in person, but there's a larger theme of something like feeling special. And like, mm -hmm. how can that translate or humiliation? Maybe there's like certain fantasies that wouldn't feel good in person, but there are threads of that, that you can bring into your in in-person play with yourself or other people yeah if people want to explore this a little bit in like a safe way or maybe even like dip a toe in mm -hmm. um how would you what would you recommend to them yeah definitely um there's a lot of incredible um both like kink educators and pro doms that you can follow on instagram um on avn like many places like that um I think it's really helpful to see, again, professionals who know what they're doing and, and do educating and also like show examples of scenes um, through porn or other sort of like instructional BDSM videos. Um, so yeah, I think like doing doing your research from the people who know what they're talking about, what they're doing. Um, and especially if you're like queer and um, feminist, like finding resources of people who also identify those ways because a lot of stuff out there cannot always align um with like who we are so it's important to find people who are educating or making content that align with our values as well yeah yeah thank you for that mm -hmm. um and that makes me think about too connecting with pleasure after experiencing trauma or as people mm -hmm. who are survivors of violence. And if there's anything that you want to share about that, about accessing pleasure as healing too. Yeah, definitely. This is sort of the like, um, in Scientology, there's the, you get to the end of it and you find out you're an alien or whatever. Like you have to do all <laughs> that work to find out that everybody's an alien or some shit. So like in, in trauma healing, like that pinnacle is pleasure. And I don't mean sexual pleasure. I mean, any kind of pleasure. So like enjoying feeling comfortable in your body, whether it's like being in cozy pajamas and with like snuggled up with something or someone, um, or experiencing pleasure through dance or movement or being in nature or through sex or through kink, um, through allowing someone to touch your body in a sexual or non-sexual way. So like pleasure is how we know we are healing, have healed, mm -hmm. have the capacity to heal. Um, it's It really encompasses all of that. And for a lot of people, they feel like they can't experience pleasure in their body. And then the ability to go there is so exciting. It shows the work that they've done. Um, and for other people, pleasure is the way to heal their body and they can't experience mm -hmm. it. And there just needs to be more more space made for pleasure. I think especially in capitalism, now that many of us work from home, there is a possibility where we will just do that. And there's no time for taking care of ourselves. A lot of people I know, and my old self <laughs> a year ago included, like the only time that I made to really care for myself was, you know, making a massage appointment or, um, going out for a nice dinner and like those things are gone for a lot of people don't feel comfortable doing that and so we have to find other ways that are actually like tend to be a bit more nurturing not that it's not great to like see a masseuse I miss that so much <laughs> I um, miss that so much oh my god <laughs> um but it's more like oh maybe I don't have to have someone else 
cook me a nice dinner. Like maybe I can do that for myself. That's been like number one quarantine Mm. activity for me is cooking. Um, if I'm like, Ooh, if I could eat somewhere tonight, where would I eat? And then I just cook that myself. And it's like, Oh yes. Um, yeah. So being able to feel like we can make space for our bodies, um, in an anti-capitalist way, like that is so, so healing and important, just making, making space for pleasure. And also like understanding that, a lot of people hear pleasure and they think sex and certainly that's one aspect, but pleasure is actually like so many other things as well. So many things. Yeah. And it is so interesting how in capitalism, the only times we're supposed to really relax or rest are like, if we pay for it, I was thinking about oh this God, the other year of like, yeah, like I would go to my acupuncturist and take a nap at the acupuncture place, but I wouldn't just take a nap in the middle of the day at home. Know, like exactly. that's exactly <laughs> I like go I mean. somewhere. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's so, I, <laughs> I was doing like a, um, yoga like the restorative yoga so not yin where you're like deep stretching but like restorative where you're just like doing nothing I was doing one the other day for the first time so because I've just been doing restorative yoga all the time by like laying around and I did a class and it was actually like very upsetting to do the class I was like oh my god this used to be the only way I rested this used to be the only way that I didn't look at my phone like I I left the class and I was like oh I don't need that anymore like I can just (laughs) lay around in my house like I don't need Wow. It was like so upsetting to realize that. So yeah. In cap- not that restorative yoga isn't great for some people. Please, <laughs> please do that. If that's your thing, it's not my thing anymore. Um, but yes, we, we are taught that that is the way that it is acceptable to do nothing when in fact, please do nothing all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that space of doing nothing for me anyways, like it feeds me so much. It mm-hmm. brings pleasure. It makes me feel creative. It yeah. It makes me enjoy being alive. And Totally. Yeah. that enjoyment Absolutely. has not been a lot during Corona. So like we really have to, yeah. to reach for those things. Yeah. I feel like also our, our windows get so blown out by capitalism. So like the only time I feel good is a massage. The only time I feel good is like eating a really nice dinner and quarantine has really helped me at least like shrink my window. <laughs> like mm. it feels good to just sit on my couch and have a cup of coffee in the morning. Like that feels yeah. good now, um, versus like waiting for these bigger moments. So yeah, finding the time and space for pleasure is extremely important. Yeah. One of mine is just looking out the window. Yeah. <laughs> just like looking and yes. I don't even have a very nice view, but like when I woke <laughs> up this morning, it was snowing and I just looked out the yeah. window and I was like, Oh my God, how beautiful. Or just like totally. seeing like a bird floating around. It's it's just nice. And it's yeah, pretty. totally. Yeah. That I got to watch a bunch of Cardinal birds play in the snow this morning and I just like, stood there and watched for a while. And I was like, this is so much better than looking at Instagram. Fuck. Like, I'm like, this is the new TV show. These birds. <laughs> so true. Yeah. In my neighborhood, there are a lot of indoor outdoor cats. So like mm-hmm. there's always like a cat in my backyard, like up to something. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what have you been cooking up recently? <laughs> it's been oh my good. God. Yeah. So, so many things. Um, so I have the New York Times cooking app, which like saved my life this pandemic for sure. Like actually yeah. truly helps me be alive. Like, honestly, it is the like main way that I care for myself after a long day is cooking something elaborate. Um, so everything on there, um, if there is anything like specific that's been making me really happy to cook, hmm. there's a really great 
baking cookbook called Snacking Cakes. And they're like easy, delicious, flavorful cakes that you can just make and then eat whenever you want. For whatever reason, like that name like gives us permission to like eat a cake whenever we want, which I love. Um, So I've been like baking a lot of those things. Um, And yeah, just like literally think, like, like I said, I will think about, okay, if I was leaving work, what would I want to go and get on my way home? And then I will search for that in like the New York Times cooking app, which I'm not sponsored by. I truly just love it that much. (laughs) Full disclosure. um, I'll be like, oh, I really want like French onion soup and then I'll search for recipe Mm -hmm. and then I'll make it. And it's so fun to like, um, to get to do that and be like, I made that for myself, like from scratch. This is so much better. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been really, really fun. It's been really fun to push myself outside of the boundaries of what I used to look at for a recipe. So I was like, Mm. oh, is there too many ingredients or like, is there too many steps? Like forget about it. And I'm like, oh, it's a three hour recipe. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I love that. There's something about cooking that feels nourishing to me too in so many ways it's just like working with your hands and not like staring at a screen and literally making something new out of all these different parts and then getting to eat it and receiving pleasure from it that's like the dream that's awesome it really is yeah it's it's a sometimes like life is just that simple you know like yeah that's really all I need at the end of the day is to yeah cook something elaborate and get to enjoy it with someone yeah Okay. I'm going to ask you the last question I always ask on this show on that note at New York Times Cooking App. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because the name of the podcast is Living Open. What does living open mean to you? What comes up when you hear that? Mm, That's such a nice final question. Oh, being open. It makes me sort of just like think about opening my like arms Mm. up really big and like opening my chest for like accepting love, accepting experience. Um, yeah. Like being authentic, like taking up space versus like shrinking, like hunching over a desk or like being small, um, allowing like all of the parts of myself to be here and like appreciated and loved versus like closed off to them and not allowing them space to be. I love that. Can you tell everyone where they can find you online and anything cool that you have going on or coming up? Yeah, absolutely. So folks can find me first and foremost on my website. So I'm trying not to push (laughs) social media as much. (laughs) Um, So it's my first and last name, andreaglick.com. And I have a new monthly newsletter that is full of what I'm cooking and reading and um, trauma and somatic theories I'm playing around with that folks can sign up for on my website. And I have some workshops on there. I have a digital minimalism workshop on there um, that can be really helpful for the stuff we were talking about. And then also on Instagram, if you must. <laughs> Although I do I do post on there um, semi-frequently. So it is a good place to find me as well um, at Somatic Witch. And yeah, things that are coming up. I'll probably be teaching some workshops sometime this year, um, which folks can find out about through my newsletter website. And then um, I'm accepting career coaching clients for people who are therapists and healers and want to expand their practice and practice more authentically. So that's that's really where I'm I'm focusing a lot of my time and really enjoying getting to do that work with people. Oh, that's so great. 
Thank you so much for being here. I don't want to let you go. I love this conversation so much. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved this episode, please do tap five stars and leave us a nice review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. I appreciate it so, so much. And it's a really lovely way to be in exchange with the show, with an indie podcast. You can check out all the links mentioned in this episode in the description, and I'll be back on Monday with another episode. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss it and stay in touch on Instagram at E-R-Y-N-J underscore or Patreon until then.